equal but different. That's one of the characteristics of the man and woman that God created. And we know from observation and from experience that that's true. Let me illustrate. Four things you will never hear a man say. Number four, here, honey, you use the remote. (laughs) Number three, while I'm up, can I get you anything? Number two, ah, forget Monday Night Football. Let's watch Sense and Sensibility. The number one thing you'll never hear a man say, we never talk anymore. (laughs) Now, just so you know, they're different. Four things you will never hear a woman say. Number four, what do you mean today's our anniversary? (laughs) Number three, can we not talk tonight? I'd rather just watch TV. Number two, uh, don't stop for directions. I'm sure you'll be able to figure out how to get there. (laughs) Number one thing you'll never hear a woman say, I don't care if it's on sale, $300 is too much for a designer dress. Okay, I don't know. I guess I can only go up from here. We continue in this series on marriage. Again, if you're single today for whatever reason, Let me encourage you not to totally tune me out. You may get married sometime. You have friends that are married. Uh, It's good to know what Scripture teaches about marriage. So um, anyway, last week we focused in on God's intent for marriage as revealed in the creation of man and woman who became one flesh, a truth that was reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament. And this ideal gives us something to aim for. So we aren't just around to make up our own ideas about this relationship, nor should we just be settling for anything that's just okay. As I said last week during our dialogue time, we recognize that we've all failed in different aspects of relationship, even in our marriages for those of us who are married. It simply comes from the fact that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And because of sin, our natural bent is toward selfishness, self-centeredness, self-control, self-fulfillment. It's just just the thing that we have to deal with. It's difficult to put others first and others' needs first. And in a close-in relationship like marriage, it shows up often. And let's be honest, it can be pretty ugly at times. But I hope that we yet all agree that though we're aiming for the ideal, uh, we know we'll often fail to live as we ought to live, we'll fail to do as we ought to do, and that's why we need God's grace and each other's forgiveness. Before we jump into a New Testament passage about husbands and wives in marriage this morning, let me just comment on something that often comes up in discussion about the order of God's creative work. The Genesis account says that Eve was created as a helpmeet suitable for Adam. Now, some see this as an insult, as something second class, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Let me quote from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. He writes, the English word helper is not the best translation for the Hebrew word ezer. Helper connotes merely assisting someone who could do the task almost as well without help. But helper is almost always used in the Bible to describe 
God himself. Other times it's used to describe military help, such as reinforcements without which a battle would be lost. To help then, help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. Woman was made to be a strong helper. The word suitable is just as unhelpful a translation. Keller writes, this translates a compound phrase that is literally like opposite him. Like opposite him. The entire narrative of Genesis 2 is in which a piece of the man is removed to create the woman strongly implies that each is incomplete without the other. So God created man. He created them in his likeness. He created them male and female. And he gave them complementary roles to play in marriage that is a human picture of divine unity, equality, and differentiation of roles. And that's why in our message planning team, we titled the message Teamwork. For a growing, healthy, biblical marriage, husband and wife have got to work as a team. Each doing their own part to empower the other, uh, to contribute to the whole, and to fulfill their function within a good marriage. Now, I recognize right up front that our topic today raises some eyebrows, some hackles, even some ire. Part of that is due to a misunderstanding of the text, uh, but we also have to honestly admit that we all have our filters, we all have our biases through which we look at everything, even Scripture. And I have to acknowledge that, that you may feel a little bit of tension between what Paul writes and maybe what you've grown up to think, or certainly what our culture thinks today and presents today. So this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 5. This passage, unfortunately, has been used to enforce dominance of men over women. It's a passage that's been dismissed as unfortunate baggage that Paul carried into Christian faith uh, out of his past rabbinical uh, thinking, unenlightened, of course. Today, this passage is viewed through the prism of women in the workforce and all of the different things that come along with that, including sexual harassment, discrimination, even condemnation by some Christians that, that the women are robbing men of jobs and have left the place of the home where they should be. Uh, it's seen through the prism of spousal abuse, radical feminism, and a modern approach to marriage. Listen, let's give it a try. If it doesn't work, eh, we can always get out of it. Easy come, easy go. There is such unclear and changing perceptions on roles, on teamwork within married life. So this message, I'll tell you right away, is really for those willing to discover a biblical explanation of marital roles. Um, and I hope what I'll do this morning is to uh, share with you what I believe is the plain teaching of Scripture to set before you the biblical model for your consideration. Let me begin by noting what the passage is not about. Um, it is not teaching about the general relationship between men and women. That is that all women are subject to all men. That is not what it is about. It's not teaching about the relationship of men and women in the church. There are other passages in the New Testament that address that. It's not laying down for us any teaching regarding women's role in society at large, in the marketplace, or in politics. 
It's just not meant for that. Nor does this passage deal with issues related to divorce or remarriage. There are other passages that we'd have to go to for that. What this passage does teach is the relationship of husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. How to live and relate as a Christian husband and a Christian wife in the home. So we're going to take a look at the passage in its entirety, and then we'll kind of step in and, and look at it in its components. So if we're going to Ephesians chapter 5, you grab a Bible in front of you if you already have it, page 1244, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just read from starting at verse 22, and then we'll step back. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, if we're going to properly understand and fully appreciate Paul's teaching, we just have to consider the historical context, the background of the state of the family during the time that Paul writes these words. New Testament scholar William Barclay has detailed this so vividly in his commentary. So if you'll just bear with me, I want you to listen to his description of the world and the state of marriage. He writes, no one reading this passage can fully realize how great it is. Throughout the years, the Christian view of marriage has come to be accepted. Even if practice has fallen very short of the ideal, the ideal has always been in the minds and the hearts of those who live in a Christian situation. But things were very different when Paul wrote. In this passage, Paul is setting before men and women an ideal which shone with a radiant purity in an immoral world. A.W. Verall, the great classical scholar, once said that one of the chief diseases of which ancient civilization died was a low view of women. The Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him, quote, a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. Two things in Jewish law made matters worse. First, the wife had no rights of divorce at all, unless her husband became a leper or an apostate or engaged in a disgusting trade. I'd love to know what that one was. <laughs> Broadly speaking, a husband under Jewish law could divorce his wife for any cause, 
a wife could divorce her husband for no cause. The woman was utterly helpless and defenseless under Jewish marriage law. Second, the Mosaic law said that all a man who wished to divorce had to do was to hand a bill of divorcement correctly written out by a rabbi to his wife in the presence of two witnesses, and the divorce was complete. The only other condition was that the woman's dowry must be returned. He says, in the time of the coming of Christianity, even with Judaism, the marriage bond was in peril. So greatly was it in peril that the very institution of marriage was threatened because Jewish girls were refusing to marry at all because the position of the wife was so uncertain. The position was worse in the Greek world. Prostitution was an essential part of Greek life. Demosthenes had laid it down as the common and accepted rule of life. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. The women of, the women of respectable classes in Greece led a completely secluded life. She could take no part in public life. She never appeared on the streets alone. She never even appeared at meals or at social occasions. She had her own apartments and none but her husband might enter into them. It was the aim that as Xenophon had it, she may see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. The Greek respectable woman was brought up in such a way that companionship and fellowship in marriage was impossible. A man found his pleasure and his friendship outside his marriage. Barclay says, in Rome in Paul's day, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. By the time of Paul, Roman family life was wrecked. Seneca wrote that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be remarried. That's the background against which Paul writes and lays out this liberating, uplifting, endearing, and hopeful vision of a Christian marriage. When you look at history and all through everything that's gone on, Christianity has done more to elevate women, their value, their worth, their contributions, their significance, their importance than any other force. So the gospel enters into a world that did not value women, in which women were not only looked at as second class, but were treated accordingly. So you have to understand what revolutionary teaching comes in with biblical Christianity at this point. And, and, and also you have to think about the problems that arose out of the gospel coming to people in this setting. For example, uh, what would happen if one spouse in a marriage was converted to Christ and the other was not? What do you do? And so both Paul and Peter discuss that and give instructions. That's outside the scope of what we're looking at this morning. But they have to deal with these real-life problems. So the proper role of husband and wife is given here in this passage. God is the one who created us male and female. So it makes sense then that when our designer communicates his desire for our relationships, he would ask each of us to do, first of all, what it is that makes us thrive. And second, what best helps to meet the deep needs of the one that he's given to us as a spouse. 
Now in Ephesians 5, just to set the biblical context here, Paul's in the middle of teaching on the practical implications of all the truths that he explained in the first half of the book. Truths about our identity in Christ. Truths about all that God has done for us in Christ. Our position in Him. And then he moves to the second half of the book and begins to talk about the practical implications. If these things are all true of you, then you should live this way. And so in chapter 5, he opens up by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he goes on to say that we are to walk in love just as Christ loved us. We're to walk in light doing what is pleasing to God. We're to walk in wisdom making the most of the opportunities that God gives us. And next, Paul says we're to walk in the Spirit. Look back in chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, controlled, empowered by the Spirit. That is, we're to allow the Holy Spirit to control our thoughts and our actions. We're to yield our hearts and our minds and our bodies to Him for His use. And when we do that, there are several things that will give evidence of the Spirit's control. Paul goes on to say, and these are all participles following on the action of the main verb there, to be filled with the Spirit. We're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. We're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means seeing others as they are in Christ. And then acting accordingly toward them. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says that we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. That we're to look out not only on our own interests, but also on the interests of others. And when we do that, then we imitate Christ, who humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, that he might become our Savior. And then Paul comes to this point in his book, and he turns to primary relationships. And, And he gives instructions to husbands and wives in marriage, to parents and children into the home to slaves and masters in the workplace. But our focus today is on the marriage relationship. And so Paul says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And these two are built on the unity of marriage. The two shall become one. This teaching is given for the godly function of one unit, of teamwork within marriage. If you might remember back in our study of 1 Corinthians, we saw Paul teaching an incredibly amazing concept, revolutionary really in that mindset, and particularly to a city like Corinth. When in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about the implications in the sexual area of a married couple. Look at what he writes. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
And what Paul does in that little section is he declares an equality of rights and responsibilities in the sexual relationship within marriage. Again, unheard of in that culture. But Paul says, this is what a Christian marriage is going to look like, and this is the way you're going to relate to each other as husbands and wives. We know by looking at this in Ephesians 5, both submissiveness and love are commands to be obeyed. But they're at the same time intimately connected, and yet they stand alone in their charge to each respective spouse. So, let's just break it out here. To the wives, wives, Submit to your own husbands. Look at verse 22 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Now, we have to begin first with the negative. What does this not mean? Let's get that out of the way. First of all, it does not mean inferiority. I'll tell you why. Marriage is so much a mirrored pattern of the Godhead. We got a couple illustrations. One is, think about this, Christ is the bridegroom. The church, believers, are the bride. So a Christian marriage is meant to be a picture, a reflection of that relationship. There's also a a doctrine that we call the doctrine of economic subordination. Of economic necessity, there must be just one head. There's a hierarchical relationship. God the Father is head. So you go study the Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see that each person within the Godhead is equal to the others. Each of them shares the same divine essence, the same quality. And yet the Son willingly submits to and glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. That's what the Scripture teaches. So here, the equality within the Godhead, and yet of necessity, a hierarchical relationship. And so a Christian marriage with husband and wife follows that, mirrors that, is an example of that. Second of all, it does not mean subservience to aggressive domination. Particularly, and please listen, because we're living in 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 a crazy time, crazy culture. It does not mean bearing abuse as the God intended attitude of submissiveness. I'll tell you personally, I believe that it's a dangerous teaching that a wife must remain in the home while suffering physical and psychological abuse as a demonstration of faithfulness to Christ. I'm not advocating divorce at that point, but I'm advocating getting out of that situation when there is true objective abuse. That's not the submissiveness that Paul is teaching. It's not conditional. That is, I'll submit if he deserves it. I mean, let's face it, men. Nothing more said. You know, I, I, I'll submit as long as I get my way. Or I'll submit as long as he's worthy of it. On the other hand, it's not absolute. That if, if there's ever a contradiction between uh, obedience to God or obedience to husband, submissiveness to God always wins out. Always a higher priority. Now, that's got to be considered carefully, applied scripture accurately, uh, lest it just becomes a convenient fire escape out of something that isn't happy. Uh, It's also not about delineation of responsibilities in the home. You know how that goes. Women do the cooking, cleaning, teaching children, etc. Husband do finances, lawn care, watch TV, things like that. 
Listen, some of you couples would be much better off if your wives would handle the finances, the checkbooks. One of the things I always talk with couples before they get married and say, that's one of the things you've got to talk about. It's one of the major causes of marriage breakups is over financial matters. So which one of you is better at doing that? So it doesn't have to do with that. Men, on the other side, we have a clear mandate to teach spiritual values to our children. That isn't something to be left just to the mom. So we have roles to play that intersect each other there. So what does it mean? One of the books that I'll recommend if you're interested in digging, digging deeper in this whole topic is by Dr. Claire Smith. It's God's Good Design, what the Bible really says about men and women. Just a tremendous book. But I want you to, to listen here because she makes an excellent point about submission, how it's put into practice. She writes, the remarkable thing is just how little information Paul gives about how it works out in practice. The questions we might ask, what exactly does submission involve? Can a wife correct her husband? Can she earn more than him? Can a woman with a strong personality marry a woman who is less strong? Are not even on Paul's radar. And that is a blessing. So often we want things spelled out in lists and rules especially those of us who like measuring our spiritual progress by ticking boxes. But that is one-size-fits-all holiness. And unfortunately, God does not deal with us like that because we are all different sizes. Each one of us is unique, and so every marriage is different, with different strengths and weaknesses, weathering different seasons of life with different demands and different stresses. In all these circumstances... And through all these difficulties, Christ is working in each of us to make us holy, not with a one-size-fits-all approach, but transforming us as individuals to be like him. So what Paul gives us is not a step-by-step -step list of instructions on how to submit, but general parameters for wifely submission. So I think some of the parameters would include these. Um, accept the God-given order of accountable authority. That God has established this authority, God, husband, wife, children. And here's, here's just one little example. If there's an irreconcilable difference of opinion, for example, on a decision, I think submission would be to defer to your husbands if you meet you know, at, at the loggerheads there. Um, it doesn't mean the decision is right in all cases, but it means that God is going to hold him responsible as the head of that marriage. Uh, but listen, don't fall into the trap of just giving in so if something goes wrong, he's the one to blame. That's, that's not the right attitude here. I think second, it means to show respect to the position in which God has placed him in the home. It means to support him emotionally in his role. Because you see, in both those actions, you are showing submissiveness to Jesus through your actions. Paul says, be subject to your own husband's as to the Lord. So your motivation in all of this ought to be, first of all, is to please the Lord. Secondly, your husband. I think, thirdly, it means to be committed to meet his needs. If you're married this morning, women, do you know what your husband's needs are? Dr. Willard Harley is a clinical psychologist, former director of a network of mental health clinics in Minnesota, uh, in his decades of counseling experience, he's identified five basic needs that men expect wives to fulfill in marriage and five basic needs that women expect their husbands to fulfill. And now, I have to tell you, these are general observations that he's made over the years. And yet, to be honest, for the most part, I think he's pretty much on target. 
You know, if you find yourself disagreeing somewhat, you know, that's okay. Uh, all of us are affected by different stages of life, by other factors in our lives. You might reorder them a little bit. There might be something that's not on this list that you would. But I think Harley's pretty much on it in a, in a general sense. So wives, your husband's five most basic needs in marriage. Number five, admiration. We might use the word respect would be another one. Number four, domestic support. Number three, an attractive spouse, one who takes care of herself. Two, recreational companionship. And no surprise, one, sexual fulfillment. This is his observation uh, with decades of practice. So be committed to meet your husband's needs in marriage. That's part of your responsibility. Now to the husband. Husbands, love your wives. Now men. If you noticed in here when we read this passage, the majority of the verses in this passage on husbands and wives are written to you. They're written to husbands. Uh, we're, we're, I'm really sorry about that. Um, this doesn't exactly fall into our strengths uh, for the most part here. Uh, but we really need the Spirit of God to saturate our minds and hearts with His wisdom and empower us to do what we're called to do, which is to love our wives our model, did you notice, is Jesus and his relationship to the church. Uh, look again, start at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So we ask ourselves, what kind of head is Christ to the church? Is he a dictator? Is he a CEO? Is he a quality control manager? No. God's called you to be the head or the leader in your relationship. But the emphasis, listen to this, the emphasis here is not on your authority to govern, but on your responsibility to love. The Lord himself told us that a true leader is one who serves others. So what does it mean practically then, if we are to love our wives? Well, first of all, we have to know it's an act of the will doesn't depend on whether you feel like it or not. It's not conditional on whether, in your opinion, she deserves it or not, or whether she's meeting your needs satisfactorily. You're called to make a choice to act in a loving way. What does that look like? What might that be? Well, let me just call to mind what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Remember, love is kind. It's patient. It's, it doesn't insist on its own way. Uh, it's not rude. It rejoices with the truth. Just read that passage in 1 Corinthians. That ought to characterize the love that you have for your mate. I think it also involves leadership, assuming your God-given responsibility as a leader in your home. And that's going to look different in all different kinds of marriages. You know exactly what that is. We don't have to fit it all into one little uh, picture. I think it means submitting to Christ as your head. I'm guessing your wife will find it much easier to submit to you if she sees you submit to Christ. If she sees you wanting to please him and walk in the way of him. It also means selfless sacrifice. Again, Jesus is the model. And we're to love our wives sacrificially just as Christ does the church.
It also means to know your wife and be committed to meet her needs. Husbands, do you know what your wife's needs are? Okay, men, listen, pay attention. Her needs aren't necessarily your needs. Take that filter off. That's the natural filter that's on there. And in his counseling practice, Dr. Harley has observed the wife's most, five most basic needs as these. Got your pen ready, men? There they are. Number five, family support or family commitment. Number four, financial support. Number three, honesty and openness. It's getting harder. Number two, conversation. Number one, affection. Next week's topic is communication. Uh, it's rather important in relationships, uh, as you can see even here. Um, and so we need to understand what's there. You know, when I talk with counseling uh, couples before they get married, because we go through a whole litany of things, um, if you're not careful, what you do is you see these needs as weapons to be used in marriage. A uh, weapon used against one another in marital conflict. Women often practice sexual blackmail. Husbands practice emotional blackmail. And that's how they get at each other. And if their needs aren't met, they say, your need didn't get met either. And they use it as blackmail. And it helps to break up marriages. Now remember again, you may look at these two lists and, and you may conclude, I'm different. That's, that's okay. The important thing is to know and to articulate your needs to your spouse. To know and be committed to meet the needs of your spouse. Equal value, equal worth, equal standing before God, and yet different roles within marriage. Let me say this differentiation of roles does not come from Genesis 3, the historic fall into sin. This is not a consequence of the fall. This comes from the created order pre-Genesis 3. And so God creates man as male and female. He blesses them both. And he establishes this wonderful thing we call marriage. Husbands and wives, here's your assignment for the week. i to give you something to do. Would you ask each other if those respective lists are representative of your needs? If not, what would your list include? So just an honest conversation. Yeah, these are, okay, these five needs, I don't agree. This, I'd move this one over here. Yeah, this is one that isn't on there that is my need. But what are your needs in marriage? Tell your spouse that. And then let me ask you, each spouse, make an effort this week to specifically target one of those needs that you will intentionally, very intentionally seek to meet during the course of the week. Which one is it on your list? Will you be committed to being an instrument of, of life change for that person? So affirm your commitment to serving your spouse and meeting their needs. Here's another suggestion for you. Um, order the book by Willard Harley, His Needs, Her Needs. Uh, it's one of the books that I give out to every couple I ever marry. Uh, building an affair-proof marriage. Um, and, and do this. Read it together. Read it together. Discuss what's in there. Um, you know, you, maybe you've been married 10, 20, 30 years, and you think we got this thing down. Uh, no, because you're still a sinner like I am. So let me encourage that. And then the second book, 
as a resource, if you want, is God's Good Design uh, by Dr. Claire Smith. Again, great book on this whole subject. She goes into all the passages in the New Testament that deal with different roles for husbands and wives, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the home, in the family, whatever. But I think uh, those would be two good resources for you. So next week, as I said, we're going to talk about communication, the principles that are there applicable for every person that'll, that'll listen, every person that'll be there, whether it's in marriage. Sometimes there's some uniquenesses in marriage. We'll talk about that. But there are principles there. And then the last week, we have to deal with something that's really important. How do we resolve conflict um, in interpersonal relationships, in marriage? So we'll just tackle the whole thing. Well, let me pray, and we'll go to our dialogue time. Lord, thank you so much. For the fact that you created us in your image, that you created us to know you, and that you created us to know one another. And if you bring us into a marriage relationship with another person, you've created us that we would be there to serve them, to meet, help meet their needs. Lord, I pray that you would empower us uh, to do what may be very difficult for some of us, that may not be a strength at all, but you call us to be the one to meet the needs of our spouse. And uh, would you, God, build strong, growing marriages in the midst of failure, in the midst of sin, in all those times we mess up. But thank you that you are so quick to forgive us. May we seek that from each other. And Lord, would you reveal yourself the grace that you provide to us through marriages in this church, uh, in this city, around the world as believers gather. So we commit this next week to you. In Christ's name, amen.